Amen. What a wonderful, wonderful time of worship, wonderful scripture before us today. Let's pray one more time and just ask the Lord uh, to bless our time and our exposition of scripture together, okay? Pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, we come before you now. We bow our hearts before the King. Lord, we acknowledge that you are faithful to us, that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. There are few scriptures and few truths and few doctrines in Scripture that are more precious to the believer than the faithfulness of God, that you are the faithful God, that you are the covenant-keeping God, that your word is true, that the word of God cannot be broken, as Jesus said, that all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ, that what you have begun you will finish. You are the God that keeps His promises. And you are the God that keeps His promise to each and every individual child of God that you call. Remind us of that today, O Lord. Keep our minds and our hearts steadfast and immovable upon You. Help us to be stirred up by way of reminder of some of the most basic elementary things of the faith, and yet those things that we so often neglect, forget, and underestimate, those are the things, Lord, that make for a sure faith, a steady faith, a steadfast hope. And so, Lord, we pray that as we feast upon your word today, you would strengthen our hearts, Lord, and that our hearts would be strengthened by grace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, closing out this letter very quickly. Uh, But as you saw, we kind of came to a screeching halt right before the very end of the letter. Some of you were probably thinking, are we going to go all the way to the end? No, Uh, the suspense is still building to that. But uh, this section of Scripture really deserves its own exposition. It really merits our time that we take our time and sit here and pause and think over this closing benediction on behalf of the Apostle Paul, a benediction that I've entitled Paul's Purifying Benediction for the Church. Remember, we're in the whole section here dealing with practical theology or pastoral theology, beginning in verse 12 all the way to the end of the letter. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at Paul's closing remarks. And really, folks, just so you understand these epistles, the way they work, is that if you go through all of Paul's epistles and even Peter's and others, but the closing section of these letters are immensely practical. But, you know, the more I looked at the closing of each one, I did that. I went by, I went back, and I looked at every single close of every single letter that Paul and the other apostles wrote. And what I saw was that emerging out of those closing statements are not just cliche statements. These are not just sort of pithy comments at the end, sort of sentimental sort of parting words on behalf of you know, the Apostle Paul or whoever. No, these are, these are rich sort of, um, this is precious terrain here, these closing letters. Uh, a lot of these letters are short. They're short because of time. They're short because of the context in which Paul is writing them. Some of these are written in prison. He doesn't have time in prison or the luxury uh, to sit and to write voluminously to a church and some of these uh, letters are written out of dire necessity. I mean, you think about even First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. They are written, remember, on the backdrop that there are, you know, there are sinister agents at work in the Thessalonian churches that are those that are disturbing the church's faith. And so Paul has to address the church 
quickly and get that letter out to them. Well, but these closing statements, like I said, these are really rich and glorious uh, parting words on behalf of the Apostle Paul. And this section is no different. This is a purifying benediction. At least that's the goal. That's the aim. That's what the, the letter was designed to do. It was meant to purify the church, to encourage the church, and to sanctify the church. That's what Paul wants to do here. He wants to impart, as he often closes a letter, grace to you or some sort of benediction like that. That's really what it is. It is the desire to impart the purifying grace of God to the church so that it will continue in the trajectory in which it is going so that their faith will come to a completed faith, a settled faith, a mature faith. That's the uh, ambition here. I want to remind us, brothers and sisters, that for the Apostle Paul, he understood that God's highest ambition for you and I is sanctification. Um, I know that we, 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 we pray to God and we, um, we seek the face of God for a lot of our temporal needs, a lot of our physical needs, and rightly so. We should go to God for everything. But understand that what God's ultimate um, priority is for your life and for mine is conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's building in you a certain character, a certain image, a certain maturity, and it's all spiritual. Uh, God is not vain. Uh, He doesn't care so much simply about the temporal Sure, He wants you in a sense that He's going to take care of your needs. He's, like Jesus says, don't worry about what clothes you're going to wear, what you're going to eat. You know, all of those materialistic, practical issues that we are so consumed by. Ironically, those are, if I could put it on God's list, it's kind of low on the totem pole of God's priorities. What's the highest priority is your sanctification, is your heart work. And that is exactly what Paul is praying for here. These are all, we could say this is one big prayer. This is a request, a petition on the part of Paul, the pastor, the the apostle, and he, he really bears his pastoral heart here for his people. And that's why when it says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, that's sort of the overarching general prayer request that the Apostle Paul has here. So let's look at this slowly. Number one, uh, we're going to use the language of prayer as our alliteration, okay? Number one, a prayer, therefore, for sanctification. And we should point out immediately the address that Paul uh, makes here because the prayer is addressed to God who is described here with the attribute of peace, the God of Peace, which is just a remarkable attribute of the Apostle Paul. Notice also that as Paul approaches God and makes a request of God and prays to God, notice how Paul beautifies God. In other words, he accents his attributes. He amplifies those attributes. He, he really glorifies God and his perfections, his goodness, his attributes, who he is. Do you do that in your prayer? Or do you just hastily run into a prayer list and rattle off a bunch of requests? Do you beautify God? Do you adore Him as you begin to address Him? I think if we stopped and we did that more, prayer would have a greater effect upon us. If we simply paused to think and to consider who it is that we are addressing, we are addressing the God of peace simply on the face of it. What that means is that God is the one able to give you peace. He's the one that gives us peace. And this peace, again, is not a sort of uh, 
sentimental peace. It's not a shallow, superficial peace like the world seeks for their own lives so that their lives would be uh, you know, devoid of trouble, devoid of trial, devoid of financial uh, 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 sort of turmoil. No, this is an inner peace. This is a spiritual peace. If you would, let's take it to the deepest level. This is God's redemptive peace. Uh, the, the peace of God is the peace, not so much here that colors or that, that sort of describes His own eternal tranquility. It's more than that. It's the peace that God gives to His people specifically. It is the God that imparts salvific peace, covenantal peace, personal, intimate peace. John MacArthur says here, peace is the best word to summarize God's saving work, which is why the New Testament often uses it to describe Him. It denotes not just an existence, excuse me, not just some existence or situation or a state of mind that is free from conflict, but the composite of gospel blessing. Paul is not speaking of God's own tranquility, but the peace of salvation He provides through the cross of Christ for all who repent and who believe. In other words, this is not an indiscriminate peace. No, this is a special peace for a special people in a special relationship with Him. It's the peace that Ezekiel talked about. I will make a covenant of peace with them. I will be an everlast, it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I, I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Or, if you like, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, picking up right where Ezekiel leaves off. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even the Lord Jesus Christ, may He equip you for every good work to do His will. It is to the God of peace that He, pe- he petitions Him to do this. In other words, this peace is reserved for God's people, God's elect, God's children, those who have closed with God are the ones who experience the peace of God. It is those who have been reconciled unto God that experience this peace with God. And as a matter of fact, God who established the peace of redemption will produce in us the peace of sanctification, the ongoing peace of God that we experience daily in our lives or we should. As a matter of fact... As we, we can make an argument that as we increase in our sanctification, we will increase in the experience and in the confident knowledge of the peace of God. For example, one immensely practical passage, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. You know this one. Many of you have memorized it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, which is the way the apostle is saying here that the peace of God is really a transcendent peace. It has the ability to transcend all of our circumstances, our, our trials, all of our, the crucible of our suffering. It has the power to transcend all of our trials. He will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, He will guard your heart, your mind in Christ Jesus means that the God of peace will give you peace and you will experience His peace through Jesus Christ. But this is Paul's prayer, again, 
uh, in petition to the God of peace, to sanctify the church entirely. Now, one of the questions that was nagging behind this, the study of this text for me, one of, the, one of the questions I had that was just on the face of it, that was just there as I studied this, because look at the language that's used here. This is what we could call a prayer for exhaustive sanctification. Why? Look at the language. It's, 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 it's unmistakable. He says, may he sanctify you, and then he uses this Greek word, entirely. And then later he says, may he preserve you complete. And then, if that's not enough, he says, without blame or blameless or, or, or blamelessly. I don't know, is that a word? But blameless, to, so that you would be without blame. That sounds like a lot of holiness. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, I don't know that anyone here can stand up today and claim complete, entire, without blame, sanctification. And so is this Paul simply having one of those moments where he's just a little hyper-spiritual, he just got ahead of himself, he just thought of sanctification, and he had delusions of grandeur for our lives? No, it's not. I think Paul means this. One of the reasons I say that is because, as we'll see later, one of the most pivotal statements on sanctification comes out of 1 Corinthians. And why is that important? Because from everything we know about the Corinthian church is that it was a wretched church. (laughs) All kinds of problems. Divisions, schisms, immorality, uh, factions, heresies flowing in the church. And yet in that church, he still expects the same standard that he expected for a church like Thessalonians, who he really had no rebuke for. Now, see, this is Paul's standard was God's standard. He knew that the standard of sanctification can never come down. Regardless of what you do or where you're at, regardless of your maturity or immaturity, the standard of sanctification and the goal of sanctification is always the same. It never comes down. As Peter said, Be holy as He is holy. Again, that is not Peter and it's not Paul engaging in delusions of grandeur in terms of our sanctification. It is the aim. It is the goal of your life is to be sanctified. That's it. That's what we should be obsessed with as Christians. We should be obsessed with growth, holiness, maturity, sanctification. And uh, there are a lot of movements and a lot of teachings and a lot of books and a lot of trends and things that blow into the church that sort of undermine that, that approach, that, 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 that violence that is to be offered up in sanctification. And it's not good for the church. It's not good for the church. And oftentimes those movements can come in the name of Christology, sometimes in the, those movements can come in, 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 in the name of sovereignty and other good things in Christian doctrine. But what I've always maintained was if at the end of the day, after you're done with all your doctrine, all your books, all your authors and everything that you've studied or whatever conclusion you've come to, if you don't sound like the Apostle Paul, something is wrong. If there's no fear and trembling in the working out of your salvation, something went wrong in your theological process or in your exegesis. I don't care how fanciful it was. I don't care how amazing it was. I don't care whose names were attached to it. If you cannot say with sobriety, with an earnest, sober, reverent humility that I have to work out my salvation in fear and in trembling, 
Don't buy this sort of hyper-grace stuff that says, oh, you just need to focus on Christ. And by focusing and marveling at the accomplishments of Christ, then you don't have to worry so much about it. You don't have to be so obsessed about your sanctification. You don't have to be so paranoid about being holy. Well, call it paranoia all you want. I think Paul had a holy obsession with being holy. And no doubt, I think the Apostle Paul today would probably be labeled a legalist by some. Or, just like you saw the incident there in Antioch, namely Galatians chapter 2 or the end of Galatians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul interacts with Peter, maybe he'd be labeled an antinomian. I don't know. It just depends on what side of the spectrum you're on. But one thing's for sure. Sanctification, godliness, holiness is God's ambition. Here, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, it is God's own desire. Uh, This is not just simply Paul's desire for the church. It's God's desire for the church. And if it's God's desire for the church, it is God's desire for each and every single one of us individually who comprise and make up the body of Christ. Titus chapter 2, beginning of verse 11, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously. In other words, the the living sensibly, uh, I think this is important because to live sensibly is the opposite of living in excess, okay? It just it doesn't mean just, just hey, just be like a balanced person. <laughs> it's more than that. It's taking us away from the excess of the world. That's what that's all about. To live righteously and godly in the present age. That's the big one because that's where we're at. We're in the present age. And somebody could read that if they didn't know their Bible and they could conclude what's wrong with the present age. Well, in Galatians chapter uh, 1, verse 4, The Apostle Paul calls it the evil present age. So there you go. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of 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 the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Now here we go. He gave himself for us to redeem us. So that is the all-important purpose. To redeem us from every lawless deed. And here's another purpose clause. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. What does that purity look like? Zealous for good deeds. It's action. Sanctification is not so much about abstaining as it is action, doing, living, zeal, pursuing. You see? That's what it's about. It's, it's, it's the way that Paul puts it, puts it in uh, Romans chapter 6. I think it's verses uh, 19 and 20. He says, it's going from being a slave of sin to being a slave of righteousness. You see that? That's, that's what it is. But he doesn't just pray a general prayer for our sanctification. He also prays specifically for our preservation. Now, the language in the Greek is a little interesting, a little tricky really, because you see how he says... That, that your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the way it reads in my English Bible. But guess what? In the Greek text, the word preserved is the last word in the verse. In the verse. And so... What, what that tells us grammatically is that what Paul is saying is that everything is leading to the preservation of the believer. And so the whole objective of talking about 
body and spirit and, and soul and blameless and complete is so that we understand the type of preservation that the Apostle Paul is getting at. It is utter and complete preservation. And this is truly glorious, uh, as we'll see here. But he moves, therefore, from a general prayer, we could say, in his benediction, holistically tackling all of the issues of sanctification, and then to a more specific focus of the sphere of our sanctification because he refers to the spirit, the soul, and the body to be preserved. Now, a lot of people immediately raise the question of the theological debate known as dichotomy versus trichotomy because here it says, uh, uh, it says uh, spirit, soul, and body. Well, that's three. And so is man comprised of three parts? Spirit, soul, mind. So spirit and soul, two different things, right? Wrong. Spirit and soul are constantly in the Bible used interchangeably. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, interchangeable. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, interchangeable. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, interchangeable. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, interchangeable. When Mary prayed, it says that she exalted and her spirit exalted in the Lord and she treasured these things in her heart. Interchangeable. In, in other words, these are, the, these are always to speak about the internal, invisible, immaterial aspect of our constitution as image bearers of God. Matter of fact, make this crystal clear, Romans chapter 8, verse 10, refers only to body and soul in terms of the struggle of sin and salvation. So I didn't want to go down a whole train of thought there, but I am a dichotomist. I'm not a trichotomist. And only here the reference to our body is also very important. Turn with me to your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The the world, going back to the present age, the world is in competition for your body. Our body is what the world wants. It wants to tell you what to do with your body. It wants to tell you how to dress your body. It wants to tell you how to feed your body. It wants to tell you how to uh, 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 basically adorn your body. So everything from food to entertainment to fashion to sports, the, the world is after the body. Because it's in the body that the life is lived. But Scripture tells us the complete opposite. That our body is not for the world. Our body is for God. It tells us this in the most explicit way possible. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, beginning verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Big deal there. For you have been bought with a price. This is the price of redemption. When God redeems something, He takes ownership of it. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So if you go back to the first century, the Gnostics would teach that your body is really irrelevant. What you do with it, it doesn't really matter. Um, it doesn't matter what you do with your body because what really matters is that spiritual component of of your life. It's your soul. It's your spirit. So if you want to take your body and use it for drunkenness or immorality or what what have you, what's really important is that you have some sort of mystical, spiritual uh, life going on. Brothers and sisters, guess what? The origin of ideas is such that what we're facing today in our culture is Gnosticism. And you trace back the roots of what's happening today, 
everyone lives under some sort of subtle Gnostic philosophy that they're not even aware of. For example, how many times have you heard, well, I'm not a religious person, but I am spiritual, right? Well, I don't go to church, but I love God. See what they're saying there? I won't take my body to a church, but don't worry because my own personal experience is that I actually do have love for God. That is a false dichotomy. You cannot love God with your heart when you're not loving God with your body, <laughs> with your, what you're doing with the members of your body. And so what is the body for? Look at Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 6. This is um, Paul's exhaustive treatment on sanctification. Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8. I don't have time for all that right now, but that's where it's at. Those are the, those are the, the chapters you need to just live in for a few years to really understand the doctrine of sanctification, I believe. And in Romans chapter 6, he says in verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body. Can't get more explicit than that. The members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. See, when your body is not used for the glory of God and for holiness, it becomes a conduit of evil. Your own body becomes the conduit through which evil comes into the world. And so, he's warning the believers, don't use your body, the members of your body, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members, getting back to that, as instruments of righteousness to God. So I thought, okay, how do we deal with that? Well, we understand sexually that our body sexually is made for procreation and for purity. As a matter of fact, he just, he, he, he said that already and that that is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. The strength of our body is used for the service of God in order that we may serve him. So think with me, the different aspects of our body, different parts of our body. What about your brains? What's your brain for? Your brain is not to be blown out on entertainment. It's not for the consumption of folly and entertainment and immorality. Your brains are so that they can be used for thinking unto the glory of God. Your bra- the brain power that God gave you, whatever, wherever you're at on the scale of that, a little less brain power, some people have a lot of brain power, okay, whatever, wherever you're at there, use whatever you got for the glory of God. I put together a sheet, matter of fact, on our website, I always forget what I called it, but something like resources for theological study or something, Robert's nodding his head because I've showed him that but what I've done there is I've taken sort of a three-step approach to how do you glorify God with your mind in relationship to the study of God's Word, and I give you beginner study resources, and so resources that you, as a beginner, a babe in Christ who doesn't know all the theological jargon and all of the you know technical stuff yet, that you begin with this, and so I give you some very basic stuff that anyone can get, and then I give you a beginner's challenge. As a beginner, don't just settle for what you do know. Always push yourself to learn something you don't know. A lot of people ask me, how did you learn all the stuff that you know? And blah, 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 blah. You know what I tell them a lot of times? I read above my pay grade. <laughs> I picked up commentaries I had no business reading. 
<laughs> and I didn't read most of them because I skipped most of because I didn't understand most of the stuff they were saying. But I, I read above my pay grade. I read above what I was even able to comprehend. I remember when I first started uh, reading the Puritans and men like Jonathan Edwards. Right next to my desk was you know Puritan work like Edwards and a dictionary. Dictionary was like the exegetical tool. Because every other word I had to define, what in the world is that? What does that word mean? You know what I'm saying? So don't be ashamed of that. But then I also get into intermediate studies and what you should be reading when you're more starting to kind of, okay, I'm starting to learn some of it. And then advance all the way to advance all the way to Greek and Hebrew resources and stuff like that that you could be reading for the glory of God. Because our mind is for the glory of God. You see how this works? Turn to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Just to see it in process. It's something that is holy, it's sacred. It's where God is active in your life. Um, God is involved in the thinking process. And so, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning of verse 7, we have this tiny little verse on this, but there's a lot there when you are by yourself in your desk or on the couch and you're reading something have you ever sat there and read something theological and you're just like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I've been reading this 10 times. I don't get it. Right? I mean, it's not like the world I live in, trust me. But, but look at the marvelous promise here. Paul says to Timothy, consider over what I say, because what's the dynamic at work? For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You see that? Immerse yourself in the thoughts and the contemplation and in the meditation of the Word of God and of theology, and God will give you understanding in everything. I've seen it. I'm dogmatic on this point. You know why? Because of you. Many of you, when you came here, knew precious little about theology. I remember some of you. I can get up here and tell stories and make fun of you, but I won't. Instead, I'm going to praise you. Because many of you came here and you didn't understand what that was. You didn't understand what they were talking about. And you, didn't, you weren't able to follow along in Sunday school. And now you guys are like rattling off terms. Sometimes I hear people use terms. I'm like, did that person just say redemptive historical hermeneutics? A world? Like they didn't even know the term hermeneutics before. You see, this is what happens when you think over what is written. When you think over what Paul is writing or what any New Testament or biblical author is writing, when you immerse yourself in the Word of God and give yourself to meditating and contemplating these things, God grants the understanding, the illumination. It's glorious when it happens. Our minds are for thinking the glory of God. Our mouths are so that we can praise and so that we can speak the truth and love. Ephesians 4.15. Our eyes are so that we will behold the glory of God and behold the beauty of the King. Isaiah 33.17. Our ears are for listening to God's commands and receiving His instruction. Our feet are for the what? For the preaching of the Gospel. Our hands are for working hard to the glory of God. Remember, that's actually what's going on uh, in Thessalonica, some Christians were not working hard unto the glory of God. They just always seemed not to have a job, not to be working, not to be making a paycheck, not to be providing. Always some kind of laziness going on. 
And Paul has to correct that in them. Say, stop bouncing from thing to thing and always having an excuse of why you're off the hook. Everyone else is working, and yet, for some reason, you're in the body and you're functioning in here, but somehow you are not working. What's the problem? That's a, the problem is ultimately laziness. But uh, God gave you hands so that you can work hard with your hands. Whatever you find to do it, do it with all your might. That's what Ecclesiastes says. The world tells us that our bodies, brothers and sisters, are for excess. Our bodies are for debauchery, for intoxication, for entertainment, for fashion, for accessories, for fitness. Scripture tells us our bodies are vessels in the service of God's temple, i.e. the church. You want to know what you can do with your body, the best thing you can do with your body? Look at uh, Philippians chapter 2, or I could just read it to you. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. i got a question for you. Where in the world, as Paul is living sacrificially, missionary-style sacrifice, When does he have time to go shopping for organic food? When does he have time to count calories? When does he have time to read every label on everything that he reads? We are so obsessed with our health. God have mercy on us. We're more obsessed with our health than we are with the perishing souls around us. We have just become way too obsessed with ourselves, our physical frame, our health. We have made health an idol. And I know there's a balance, but right now you're on this side of the balance, okay? So give me some grace. I know there's a balance, but I just think we are so consumed with our earthly lives here. Paul's saying when he's talking about being poured out, he's referring to martyrdom. And he ends it by saying, I rejoice. I rejoice that I've been counted worthy for the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of the service of the saints, of the faith of the people of God. Really remarkable if you think about it. No, the culture is wrong. Our body is not for that. Our body is for the Master's purpose. As Paul told Timothy, bodily exercise benefits a little, but spiritual exercise, spiritual training Discipline, spiritual discipline, has great benefit, not just for this life, but for the life to come. What's the implication? It doesn't matter how hard you work out. It doesn't matter how much in shape you were and how many hours and sweat you sweat on behalf of temporal, earthly, physical wellness in the age to come. That's not going to amount to a hill of beans. That's what he's saying. It's just not going to matter anymore. Oh, sure, okay, maybe you had an easier death than some of us. All right. But you're going to die. Maybe you die with more muscle. Okay. (laughs) Romans chapter 12 sums it all up. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. So then it's not just Paul. It's not just Paul. The language of the sacrificial system 
that Paul is alluding to in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, this is not just for him. Because a lot of times we're like that, right? We figure it out in the flesh. Oh, yeah, but he was an apostle and he was a martyr and a missionary. I'm none of those things. Right? Back to my life. Well, this is talking to the whole church. The whole church is to be a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's just that, that the whole life that you live in your body is to be rendered unto Him. Total, complete sanctification. That's what Paul's praying for that will be consummated at the end of the age when your calling is turned into glorification. That's why Paul prays that God will sovereignly preserve His people. And He preserves the people He calls. You guys know this is ABC soteriology. If He calls you, He will preserve you and He will glorify you. Romans chapter 8. I basically quoted it, so I'm going to quote it. These whom He predestined. You get kicked out of a lot of churches just for reading this verse. He also called effectually, salvifically, redemptively, mystically through the Spirit and salvation. And these whom He called in that way, He justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. That's what He's saying. Jumping ahead a little bit in our exposition here of Thessalonians, that's why he goes on to say in verse 24, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. It's because the God who calls us is the God that will glorify us. But in the middle of that, he wants to sanctify us completely in every way. There will always be room for sanctification in your life. You'll never get done. Matter of fact, some of the greatest saints will tell you that as the, the longer they walk with God, the older they get, and the more they walk with Christ. The older they get, the more they realize how sinful and wicked they still are. And so God aims to constantly keep us in that state of desperation. Desperate for Him. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Talking about comprehensive complete, exhaustive sanctification. Paul talks like this everywhere. This is the way he talks about it. This is what I said. This is the way he always speaks of sanctification. He labored for this. He, he, he wept for this. He ultimately died for this purpose, to see holiness produced in God's people. That's the whole, that's the whole impetus of his labors among the people of God. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, the apostle Paul says, I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. That's, I mean, that's just one of the most precious statements ever on sanctification. But here, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, we see this. We see this ultimate passion is to see the church holified. He says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you, that is the God of peace, reconciled you in his in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. What's interesting there, brothers and sisters, maybe make a note of it, verse 22, is when he says, in order to present you before him, that's Christ presenting you before Christ. 
Same thing as Ephesians chapter 5, where he, as the bridegroom, sanctifies the bride in order to present to himself the bride in all of her beauty, glory. If indeed you continue in faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. That's why he's made a minister, is so that he can present us blameless and beyond reproach in Christ. Hold on, because this is all part of a puzzle, if you would. This is all, this has to all go together. So hope you don't leave halfway of this message because I'm not done talking about the doctrine of sanctification. Right now we have a certain aspect of it. I want to complete it with a certain aspect of it, but you've got to stay there. And this is the, the third aspect of this incredible benediction, and that is a prayer for glorification. Of course, a prayer for glorification, and we know that because the Apostle Paul takes us all the way to the consummation where he says that we would be preserved without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for the Apostle Paul, he always lived in light of that great and glorious day. As he has already talked about, we are light in the Lord. We are light in the Lord. We are not children of darkness. We are light. We'll get to that. Um, not only does Paul expect um, that God will sanctify us, but he doesn't, he doesn't expect that we will be sinless. He doesn't expect that we will ever arrive at sinless uh, perfection. I actually had somebody tell me one time that they were sinless. Uh, some guy that came to a Bible study I was teaching once said that he was sinless at the present time. And I thought, wow, what if I stomped on your foot really hard? you still be sinless then? No, you can't ever claim sinless perfection. 1 John chapter 1, I think it's verse 8 and 10, will tell us that you are a liar and the truth does not reside in you. No, we always have sin, but still the day is coming that when Christ returns, the parousia, the second coming of Christ, in that coming, we will marvel. We're not only going to marvel at the light and the beauty of the Lord, we will be transformed into the light of the Lord. And we're going to shine. I know, that, does that sound kind of weird to you guys? We're, I expect that when Christ returns and heaven comes, we will f- glow. You want to get up now and leave? (laughs) I have some texts. Matthew 13, verse 43. The text that brothers teaching in Sunday school. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has an ear, let him hear. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. So He, in His glorified luminosity, will illuminate us with the light of His beauty, the light of His holiness, the light of His glory. And that's why we're saved. Paul will go on to say, He saved us so that we might obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the whole trick of it is, is that now he's hoping, just as John will go on to say, that if you have this hope in you, you purify yourself just as He is pure. 
Again, his desire to live blamelessly. Look up, if you're in 1 Thessalonians, just back up a little bit to chapter 5, verse 4, because he's already talked about this. Will be preserved, complete, blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. When he comes, we will be transformed, and that should transform our living now. And he's already taught this in terms of, namely, that we we would be light, that we would be prepared, that we would be sober, that we would be awake, that we wouldn't be drunk, that we wouldn't live in licentiousness, but that we would be full of faith and full of love. Look at verse 4. But you, brethren, are not darkness, or you're not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light, sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. What's the implication? Everyone outside of Jesus Christ is in darkness. It's not an overstatement to say that. And we shouldn't shy away from understanding the world in that way. That they are in darkness. They're of the night. So then let us not sleep as others do. They're asleep. And let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night, which their drunkenness is just code for living licentiously in the world. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. There we can obviously see the the emphasis on human effort. The fact that you got to put on the armor by faith You need to engage in spiritual warfare. But unless this church or these believers or us today, here and now, unless we would come to the false conclusion that sanctification is ultimately owing to our effort, to man's work, man's zeal, man's own measure of obedience. It's not. And that's what verse 24 is all about. He says, Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. Now, the translation, bring it to pass, is just that. The Greek word here, poieo, just literally means He will do it, or He performs. In other words, He's the one that's going to perform the work of our final preservation. I want to show you a marvelous verse. Turn to 1 Corinthians. This is what I talked about. Remember, he doesn't lower the standard for anybody, even a carnal church like Corinth. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to show you a little insight that I found that I think you will find valuable for your life to comfort you. This is all comfort now. We are now basking in the faithfulness of God in our lives, to keep us, to preserve us, and ultimately to glorify us. Brothers and sisters, look, we are surrounded by many dangers, dangers in your own heart, dangers in your own lives. We need this encouragement constantly. And if we have this encouragement, we believe in this encouragement, we trust and live our lives in light of this encouragement, it will sanctify us. It will not produce, let go and let God. It will not produce, I'm just going to put it in a cruise control and let God save me, keep me, and preserve me. Yeah, Johnny's saved, but, you know, he's, uh, he's backslidden right now. He's just out having, you know, a beer and, you know, drinking and partying and sleeping with his girlfriend. But he's saved. Don't worry about it. God's keeping him. No, it never looks like that. It always is the opposite of that. When we are confronted with the faithfulness of God, 
that faithfulness produces purity in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 speaks to the power of God to keep us. That's the word. Now, NASB says He will preserve us at the coming. Uh, The word that's used there is just keep. He will keep us. Man, we need God to keep us. We'll know what's going to happen. We don't know which way our lives are going to go. We don't know what our kids are going to do. We don't know what our spouse is going to do. We don't know what our country is going to do. We don't know what our churches are going to do. We need God to keep us. He must keep me. He has to hold me fast. And He will if you're in Him. And so Paul, among other things, when he says here, uh, this is hard to break this passage up, the pericope goes together, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which, has give, which, which was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, as an expression of that grace, practically speaking, the church was enriched. It was enriched in Him, in all speech and knowledge, in all spiritual gifts, as He goes on to talk about. In verse 7, not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 8, listen to this. Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound almost exactly like what Paul just said in Thessalonians? It's almost exact parallel. Here's the insight. The insight is in the Greek word there, to confirm that language of he will confirm you, the Greek word there is bibio or bibiao, however you want to pronounce that. I found an interesting parallel to a lexical definition of that term that should just make your, uh, your, your, your spirit soar. You know that word literally means to confirm something and place it beyond doubt. Isn't that marvelous? You know, you know what the, the, the definition, the parallel comes from? Romans chapter 15, verse 8. You go back and study that. Because there, Romans chapter 15, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus Christ confirmed the promises that God made to the prophets. And so what he's saying is that Jesus actually fulfilled these things such that they are beyond doubt. They're absolutely certain that they were confirmed. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, God will absolutely confirm you to the end. He will absolutely keep you. It will be, he he pushes it beyond doubt. Beyond all doubt, if you are in Him. Evangelistically, what this means is you better know that you're in Him. You better make sure that you're in Him. You have, no greater, you have no greater priority in this life than to know that you're in Him. Absolutely no greater priority whatsoever. You were saved for that, no doubt. It puts something beyond doubt. It puts our preservation beyond doubt. I don't know about you, but that's exactly what I need. I need to be told God is going to keep me and preserve me without doubt. No doubting, no wavering, no unbelief. And you don't want to bring unbelief into it. He saved us for that purpose. Why is it beyond doubt? 
Why is it so sure? Why is it so steadfast, so immovable? Why is it beyond doubt? It's because when He called us, He called us for a specific eternal purpose, and that purpose was so that we would gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. Where did Paul get all of this? <laughs> he got it from Jesus. And we could say, okay, he got it from the Bible. He got it from the Old Testament. He got it from Jesus because it was Jesus. Follow me now. John chapter 6. It was Jesus who taught repeatedly that we were going to be preserved. He is the one. John 6 beginning in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. If you are, for whatever reason, still hesitating to come to Him, listen to the precious promise that Jesus Christ uttered from His mouth. If you, by faith, come to Him, you will not be cast out. There could be nothing more dreadful than to be cast out by the Son of God because He's the only one that can save you. So if He casts you out, you're out. And you got no hope. But the promise is, is that by faith, if you come, if you're given to the Son and you come to Him by faith, He will not cast you out. Verse 39, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He gives me, I will not lose nothing. I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last Day and on and on and on. Now turn with me to John chapter 17. Let's stay in the same theologian. John, beginning in verse 1713. This is what the Word of God says. Because the nature of this preservation, the nature of this keeping us to the end, preserving us, it's not so much a preservation from harm. He's not keeping you, preserving you from trouble. <laughs> Trish and I yesterday, we were comparing afflictions. You ever do that? <laughs> she comes up to me and she says, what hurts on your body? <laughs> I'm like, you got a list ready? <laughs> I could write it down. And we're just talking about this hurts on me. And what that? <laughs> we were like a bunch of old people. Anyway. We were all messed up. I don't know how we're going to make it. That's proof. He's not keeping us from suffering, sickness, or pain. Absolutely not. Um, but what he's keeping us from is final falling. What he's keeping us from is the evil one. That's what he's keeping us from. Now I come to you. Oh, this is, this is Jesus praying to the Father. I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. That's a transcendent joy right there, you guys. That's a joy that transcends your cancer, your flu, your sickness, your, your loss, your, 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 your domestic dysfunction. That's a joy that transcends everything the world can throw at you. And he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them 
out of the world. That's the key right there. See? I mean, sometimes you look at the world, you turn on the news, you flip through, like, Lord, take me out of this world. Right? Well, he's not going to do that right now. And that's not the primary high priestly prayer that Jesus is offering for his people. He's not taking us out of the world. But he says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. What is that telling us? If God doesn't remove us out of the world, if he doesn't remove us from our trials, if he doesn't remove us from this place, then what's he sanctifying us for? He's not sanctifying us for inaction. He's sanctifying us for action. He's sanctifying us so that like him, we can affect the world around us so that we could be useful in the master's hand, so that we could be a weapon in the master's hand, so that we can further his kingdom so that we can build his church so that we can advance his glory and so that we could preach the gospel that's how we're going to do it we're going to advance the preaching of the gospel and that's what the church is left behind for it's not we're not left behind just so that we can gripe about our trials you know, sometimes i tell you what i want to run out of my office in a blaze of glory and just go out into the mission field and say forget all of you forget all you guys trish grab the baby let's go let's get out of here because I know what I'm here for. And it's not to piddle around. It's not to twiddle my thumbs and woe is me and oh man. That's not what I'm here for. Bring all your trials and all your suffering and all your baggage. Take it with you, but go, go. And if you're not going to go, then do, do. Do something for the kingdom. And I think one of the reasons I'm, I'm excited about this or exercised about this, as the Puritans would say, is because I just got an email from a missionary brother of mine. He sends me these glorious pictures. He's in Ghana. Ghana. What do you know about Ghana? He's in Ghana. He's, he's in Ghana, and he's confronting the darkness of Islam. And I'm thinking, like, I just feel so... I, I need prayer. That's what I need. Father, it's not a joke. When Paul saw sanctification for what it was, it produced in him a missionary life. He did say, I'm out of here. I can't just stay in Jerusalem. I can't even just stay in Antioch. I got to go where Christ has never been preached. And Lord, we are not all going to do that. Maybe none of us in this room is really going to do that. But we all have neighbors. We all have a culture. We all have unsaved family. We all have a community college right down the street. We all have opportunity, in other words, Lord, for us to, as you preserve us, that that preservation process would not produce in us apathy. But if anything, that it would produce purity and powerful zeal to illustrate your glory to the world. Conform us, O Lord. Change us and transform us into the image of your Son. We, we confess and we desire for you to change us because... 
We have so much unredeemed humanness residing in us. And Lord, we don't want to allow that unredeemed humanness to get the upper hand in our life ever again. And so would you help us, Lord, by the Spirit to mortify the deeds of the flesh so that we can be useful for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.